Gary, what is the elephant in the classroom? Uh, so, Tom, the elephant in the classroom is NTC's point of view. And we think that it's something that most of us can, can agree on. And so when we think about the ideas and the strategies in the elephant in the classroom, these are things that are well supported um, by the science of learning and development. And some of the things that we are really honing in on in the, this point of view that we have adopted is that we are, want to make sure that we are, all, we are all working in service of students. And we want to make sure that all students have a healthy ecosystem so they can really self-actualize their innate talents and gifts. So we really want to make sure students are able to become their fullest selves, right, in, in, the, in the greatest sense. And we want to make sure within that that we're creating really inclusive environments and safe environments for students to be actively engaged in rigorous learning. And we want to make sure that educators also, who are a critical part of this ecosystem, have the tools that they need to really thrive and they can pull other educators, other folks in the community in to help support their efforts in the classroom. And so we want to make sure that schools are thriving centers for our communities and we want to make sure that we are expanding our ideas or expanding our idea of who can actually engage in the school setting because it's not as narrow as we have historically thought. And so we want to make sure we're pushing ourselves to think expansively about who can actually positively affect the lives of young people. And so that's going to require us to do an element of co-designing within the system that brings all stakeholders together to truly work uh, together and making sure that they are rowing in the same direction. Because what often happens is folks are working in silos and the elephant really is pushing us to think creatively about how to break down those silos to make sure um, there is a process in place that brings all stakeholders together to support the students. So when the student is looking around, they see a wonderful team of caring, loving adults from different walks of life that are working to advance um, their goals, making sure that they can really, as I mentioned earlier, become um, their best selves. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderark, and I'm joined today by Gary Briggs from the New Teacher Center. Uh, Gary's got a great new report out called The Elephant in the Classroom and the one and only Karen Pittman. Karen, it's so good to have you back. It's great to be here. I've missed you. It's, it's good to see you. It's wonderful to be with you, Tom. Karen Pittman is, is the most important um, advocate for out-of-school time uh, in America, and she has been for more than 30 years. Um, I, I was being generous, Karen. It, it has been 50 years. I, I knew that. Um, you, you've just helped me and, and I think the rest of America understand learning in a, in a deeper and better way and to understand uh, how important learning ecosystems are. Um, and so, I, one, I'm just deeply grateful to have you back on the podcast. And how, how did you get connected with the new Teacher Center? Is this a new or old relationship? This is an expanded relationship. So I, I got to know Ellen Marr at the, at the new, who was the former uh, CEO of the New Teacher Center when she was on the SEED Commission, the National Commission for Social, Emotional, and Academic Development. Uh, and so we bonded there. Uh, and then I guess about three years ago, um, under new leadership, uh, NTC set up an equity commission, and I was invited on to be a commissioner. 
I was intrigued enough about what they were doing and what they were trying to do, in particular because there was room, as you said, for my favorite topic, which is how do we really get people to understand the power of learning with more people, more places, and more possibilities than what happens in the classroom. Um, that's the other people in the school building and then beyond. Uh, and so I stayed on, and I've used it on as a consultant and an advisor, uh, and now a champion. I appreciate that. Um, I, Gary, I noticed that my friend Tommy Chang has recently joined the New Teachers Center as a as the new CEO. Did he join about the same time you did? Yes, we joined around the same time. Exactly. Yep. He came on a month, maybe a month or so before me. Yep. I I met Tommy when he was a principal in Venice, California, uh, 25 years ago. Um, so he's a great champion for learners and uh, for equity. I'm really excited that both of you have joined the, the New Teacher Center. What What was attractive to you about the New Teacher Center, Gary? Yeah, so uh, prior to my work at New Teacher Center, I worked for an organization that helped families navigate the educational system, um, particularly in New Orleans. I'm from New Orleans. And when I saw that NTC, the New Teacher Center, was making this pivot around co-designing systems and really bringing all the stakeholders to the table. That seemed like really interesting work for me um, because in my prior work, I was a former teacher, so I, I knew the school setting and I worked with families. So I had the, the family background. And so I was like, okay, well, how can we think about how to bring all these different pieces together in a cohesive way? And it's challenging work, but I think the co-designing element seemed really intriguing to me. Just to be a part of the creation process around that uh, was something that was very attractive. And that is really a, a topic that I think Karen has been the, the primary champion of, of encouraging schools to, to think about co-designing with learners, with families, and with, with communities. Karen, did you, uh, did you serve as a part of an equity commission that that New Teacher Center put together? Yes, there was a commission that was put together for about a year that brought, I think, probably about 18 folks together from various backgrounds to really dig into the question of equity um, and explore the ways that schools are obviously not producing equitable results, dig into why that is, both from their personal experiences and their professional experiences, and then begin to help the early shaping of this, what became this document. I stayed on for drafts, you know, three through 15, uh, so to speak. Um, but the commissioners are still actively involved. Karen, did the did the commission um, um, grab hold of this idea of the elephant in the classroom, the unspoken fact that we have a system that is actually designed to produce inequity? They grabbed hold of the concept, and that really was central in the early drafting that the commissioners did together. The actual de decision to call it the elephant in the classroom came a little bit later. Um, and it came from a combination of the communications folks looking at it and us also sharpening the number of things that the commissioner said into that magic number of three. So we got to the idea of embracing um, teaching and learning as a dynamic relationship, a dynamic human exchange, of expanding the concept of educators and communities beyond the schools and in the schools, and then, as Gary said, of co-designing. No, I appreciate those. I want to come back to each of those, but I, I do want to try to... Um, to, to hone in on the, the, the opening construct is really 
the, the elephant is this idea of inequity and that it is baked in in its historical and inherited um, fashion in American education. I, I guess I would argue it's, it's baked into the way our governance system works, the way we fund our schools, the way we structure our schools um, into our teaching systems, our grading systems. Is, is that fair to say that it, we have a system that is, that is fundamentally inequitable and that it is, um, if not by design, at least what we've inherited? We absolutely have a system that's inequitable by design and that, that elephant related to equity is where the elephant came from. Them, uh, NTC really focusing in on the persistent inequitable outcomes that we're getting out of schools and saying this has got to be because schools are designed to get those outcomes. I would add, and I think this is not explicit, but is embraced in, um, in the, 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 the point of view itself, is equity, inequity is also the result of the fact that schools were designed to not really get to excellence, as, as most parents would describe excellence, not get to engagement, as most parents want their children to be engaged, not get to empowerment as most kids want to be empowered by the time they're teenagers to really have a sense of agency. You can go on with a number of E's, but inequity comes from the fact that we're sending kids to schools that are not really driven by a high definition of excellence as defined by mastery, not engaging young people in project-based learning in other ways that really engage them fully, not really giving them that sense of empowerment and purpose, and leaving those things for parents to do outside of the school building. So I'm a youth development specialist that has been attracted to that as a time space because that's where parents are finding the kind of learning that they want their kids to do. Interest-driven learning that really supports their competencies, gives them a sense of responsibility and purpose, allows them to do things in their community that have meaning. The challenge with that is most parents are finding those things Two-thirds of parents in the country have their kids in some kind of after-school program or summer program, but it's highly inequitable. And that's the inequity is really the fact that our classrooms are designed to do any of these things that parents think are important, and then we send them out into a space that's not publicly funded. Gary, for a, a center focused on, on the formation and support of new teachers, why do you think it was important to name this elephant to, to call out the systemic inequity in American education. Because if teachers aren't thinking about this, whether you're a new teacher or a veteran teacher, the problems will persist and they will become a part of a system. They'll do, they'll do things unknowingly that exacerbate the problem, that exacerbates the inequities. And so we've got to put this out front for teachers to engage with understanding that it will be a struggle for some to understand or maybe a struggle for some to kind of wrap their hands around, arms around. But step one is having the conversation. And I think one of the things that we have to think about is how empathy can undergird the, the solutions process, right? Understanding that let's take a walk in the shoes of those who are experiencing the system how can we picture ourselves? How can we weave our stories with theirs in order to understand like how vast the problems are? But I think step one is really having the conversation and then figuring out who do you need to have at the table? What stakeholders do you need to have at the table? 
to help tackle the problem. Because I think part of this work, you have to make sure that you are including those closest to the issue to be a part of the solutions um, process. Uh, Karen, the the paper uh, took for me a, a really interesting turn after after really hard hitting uh, introduction about systemic inequity. The first section talks about learning as a dynamic relational exchange. You mentioned that a minute ago, a dynamic relational exchange. That's really, it's beautiful and, and evocative language. And I think both given the introduction on inequity and the rise of AI, as, as all of us are beginning to think about life with smart machines, the way the paper called out this, the fact that learning is a personal human relational exchange was really, I don't know, I found it unexpected and, and, uh, and beautiful and interesting. What, what, how did that, did you come up with that idea? How, how did it strike you? I will not take sole credit for that idea. I think, I think honestly, it came up from the fact that when the commissioners came together um, and went through the exercise of starting with their personal experiences of where did learning happen for you? Not what was school like, but where did you have a powerful learning experience? The idea that that learning experience has to be grounded in a relationship. It has to be grounded in a sense of knowing someone and supportive of a sense of trust. This idea of developmental relationships that the Search Institute has put together, which basically says a developmental relationship isn't just I know you, but it's that I care about you. I, I want to support you. I want to challenge you to grow. I want to empower you. Those, and I want to expand your possibilities. That's their def, There are five points for developmental relationships. And when you ask people where they had a powerful learning experience, that's what comes up, that they were in an experience that was powerful enough, that was human enough, that all those things happened. And unfortunately, when you do surveys, and the Search Institute has done a lot of them, I happen to have one in front of me because I'm a data wonk, um, and they ask young people, this was like fifth to ninth, fifth to 12th graders, how much their teachers provide those developmental relationship supports. They challenge them, grow to grow academically. 63% of the young people say that's what happens. But expressing care, only 51% of students say their te- they, they think the teachers really care about them or sharing power. The other ones are much lower. Um, the teachers, on the other hand, think they're doing a great job at this. And that's a part of the, what we have to do when we say we've got to tackle this to expand and give teachers time and space to understand they can bring a more human approach into the classroom to get to know their students better, to share more about themselves, to be vulnerable, so that students really do feel a sense of caring and feel that, that the, the student, that the teacher has something in mind for them beyond the specific information that's being imparted. Gary, is that focus on r- relational human exchange is it's the, the, the core, uh, cr- the kernel of learning. Is, is that new for NTC? Is that a new focus? I think NTC has worked to cultivate relationships with, with teachers, right? But the work has been on the instructional coaching piece. And so I think this shift is we're maintaining that piece, right? That's, an, that's a critical piece, but we're also pushing teachers to kind of our coaches think beyond like the actual instructional piece, because if you don't have a relationship with kids, it's going to be hard to reach them. So that is foundational. So you want to make sure that we are figuring out how to really get teachers and coaches to center that piece 
because once you really get that down, you can the possibilities are expanded because students are engaging with you in authentic ways and you as an educator are engaging with them in authentic ways. I, I really appreciate that. And and I as I said, it in the light of the rise of, of smart machines, it feels like the importance of human relationships, particularly in, in learning environments, is more important than ever. So I love that the report started there. Then the report took another interesting twist for me in a, in a section that talked about expanding the concept of educator and community in, in schools. So this, again, for an organization that's really been focused on teacher formation, said we, we actually need a wider lens. We need to focus on community and all the adults that are um, in, a, in a child's life. Is, is, is that a new broader focus or recognition by NTC? I would say that is a new broader focus. Um, I'll, I'll speak since I was in, that is one that I pushed for. So I'll, I'll take some credit for that. Um, and push for it as a part of a progression. So it's the, the idea, if you're gonna humanize teaching, if you're gonna ask teachers to take the time and space, make the time and space to really get to know their students and knowing that they're doing it in a system that doesn't value that, that's saying you've gotta get through this many exercises in this much time, um, you need to give them the support that there are other people in the building and in the community that can help them do that, do that relationship building. They're not gonna, they're responsible for the academic instruction. They're always gonna be, be pressed on that. The science of learning and development, the blue wheel put out by the Soul Alliance says, you have to start with relationships, then make sure kids have a sense of safety and belonging, then give them a range of challenging experiences, then support that there's their skill building, and then make sure they've got whatever they need, housing, et cetera, healthcare. Um, all those things are important. And if you don't, if, if you're in the red in any of them, you don't get optimal learning. So we're, we're also just doing a lot to bring the science of learning and development into teachers to say, it's not just that we want you to be nice to your students. There really is powerful data that says you will get to your goal of getting your kids to learn academically better if you can get this balance right. But you don't have to be alone in getting the balance right. So the connection between the first one, humanizing teaching and learning as a dynamic experience, and the second one, look outside of your classroom to see who else is working with kids, is, is a sense of way to a pressure relief. If you put all that pressure on the teacher, that somebody's gonna, that classroom is gonna explode. That elephant is just gonna get too big. And so we have to open the doors and say, you're not alone in this. You may have the academic instruction, but if you look at the other people in the building that kids have relationships with, those people have more flexibility to do the belonging, to make sure that kids feel safe, to ask them about them so that they can get caring about something not just academics, even if they're doing well in their classes. Um, so it, it really does help. And it's important, I have found, um, to basically remind teachers that half the people in the building are not teachers. And that if you're by the time you get to middle and high school, a third or a quarter of those teachers aren't core academic teachers. They're teaching things that, that kids get elective to go to that they have interest in. And so that that buffer that says we can find other people who are going to engage our kids to help them feel empowered and connected, even though we still have to do the old-fashioned thing of teaching them the stuff they don't want to learn or don't want to learn the way we're teaching it, that's a really important sort of middle step. No, I was, I was just going to say, um, I wish I'd had this when I was a teacher. <laughs> you know, I wish I'd had this information when I was a teacher because 
what I would encourage classroom teachers to do is to realize that their networks are much larger than they're trained to believe. And what I mean by that is when I was a teacher, I was like, okay, I have my grade level team and I have parents and caregivers, you know, and of course I had administrative support, but like that was the extent in how I thought about supports. And so when we talk about this idea of expanding the concept of educators, I think that ultimately helps to create a more robust profile of a student because different adults support the students in different areas, right? And they're getting different perspectives around that student. And so classroom teachers can leverage that information in in terms of how they're going to deliver instruction because the coaches give you information, the neighbor maybe give you a piece of information, the art teachers give you information that you can then use and it communicates to the child that there's, to my earlier point, that there, oh, there's a robust team of adults really around me wanting to wanting me to succeed. So I have no room to go but up because I have the support um, that I, you know, from many different different areas and vantage points. Gary, uh, earlier you you mentioned this idea of co-design. What what does it mean to co-design systems to sustain equity? Yeah, so this is a big piece of the, the work that I'm actually doing on my team at NTC, the Professional Learning Systems team. So we are in the process right now of developing a process to help systems, districts kind of work through equity issues. And what we're doing, the product is going to be the process, right? It's not going to be cookie cutter solutions that we say, okay, tell us your problem. And we're going to type up a report and then you go forth and implement, right? It's really bringing them through a process that will reveal gaps in their systems that will reveal lack of communication to particular stakeholders and will invite them to engage in a process that say, well, actually, we had no idea we were missing this. Now let's figure out how to engage and plug in those holes. And one of the first things that we're going to do as we as we were thinking about this process is making sure that, as I mentioned earlier, empathy is at the center of it, right? It's not about blame. It's about acknowledging where we are, who are we as students? How do we show up in school? How do we show up as professionals? How can we empathize with other folks who have different vantage points within the system? And how can we then use that to get them to imagine a new way of doing things? And they get, they get to prototype. It's really grounded in the liberatory design framework. And then ultimately, they get to try, they iterate, they try again, they iterate, they try again. And so it's not about getting it right. It is about going through a process that invites all voices to participate and to communicate. Um, and I think that's a beautiful way of doing it because ultimately once NTC is out of the picture, they will have developed skills that they can then use once we're long gone around co-designing, around dealing with tension, around keeping empathy at the core because um, they'll recognize that they can actually do this work, but they need some guidance from us. And Karen, I assume that that means co-designing not only with a, a school community, but with a set of out-of-school partners with a, a broader community. Is that is that right? Yes, absolutely. Very much, as you know, like that, like the XQ design process, it really needs to be a community driven process, but um, it, it can feel big and overwhelming. But I think one of the things that I've emphasized since this is the new teacher center is if you follow that straight line, if you first say to a, te- say, say to a group of teachers, say to a group of incoming new teachers, we're going to help you humanize your teaching and learning by giving you the science and giving you the, the leeway to build, be more relationship driven, to be more engaging in your classes, to not stick to all the things we want you to do. We're gonna give you permission to do that. We're gonna also then help you have support to do that. 
by identifying other people in the building, not just if you can passively know we're there, but you can act can actually be engaged in this process. When I, I did a series of podcasts last last year, and I interviewed at TE, the chief program officer at New Teacher Center, with a high school student, Carla, who was also on the all a part of the advisory group that was with the commissioners. And I, I, she was talking about the elephant and the pre-elephant, but talking about the new teacher center sort of focus on equity and humanizing learning. And I turned to Carlo and I said, so Carlo, can you tell me a place outside the classroom where you really feel you're getting a powerful learning experience? And he thought for a while, because nobody had asked him that question. You know, where are you learning outside the classroom? And he said, my soccer team. And then he talked for a full three minutes eloquently about what he was learning from his soccer team, teamwork and perseverance, and he was, and how his coach was treating him differently. And then he analyzed why it was that that was such a powerful learning experience for him. He was interested. The other people on the team were all interested. They voluntarily came together as a team. They were demonstrating what they were doing. They were, you know, all the things that make learning important, he explained. Uh, and then we were talking more about it. And I was talking about the fact that the, half the people in the building are not teachers, and often they have relationships with their kids. And Atini just paused for a moment. She said, my God, I'm thinking back to when I was a principal, and I'm thinking now, I'm closing my eyes and thinking about the relationships that I know kids had with the crossing guard, with the bus driver, with the cafeteria worker, and it never occurred to me to ask those people what they knew about their kids. It never occurred to me to ask them to come into a parent-teacher conference to say, how does that kid act on a playground? And so this is just a, it's not, if we're, if we're doing this and we're carrying it along, we're giving teachers permission to broaden this thing out, to embrace the blue wheel, so to speak, and then to bring what their barriers are when they start to embrace this, bring it up a level, bring it out to other people. And then they need to, the, 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 the team in the building needs to be empowered to talk about what they need to do to systematize this human, humanized experience, because they're going to hit barriers. Gary, um, we, at Getting Smart, we like to talk about students as co-designers or co-authors of at least some of their learning experiences. Would you include students in the loop? Oh, students are definitely absolutely in the loop. They are a critical stakeholder, right? We want to make sure we are engaging them because I believe they are experts of their own. They should be experts of their own educational experience. They know what they want, right? And if they don't, it's our job as adults to help guide them. But at, at, at the core, they, they have an idea of, of what they want. And so it's our job to make sure we're elevating their voices. Absolutely. You know, one of the things, Tom, that I would just say to bring this home is that, is that we really do, we are giving teachers language and, and evidence and space and permission to do what they think is important. No teacher in the classroom really thinks I shouldn't get to know my kids. I shouldn't stop to learn more about them. I shouldn't know more about what they're doing when they leave the classroom, but they just don't have the time and space to do that. And there was a recent study last year done by the Learning Heroes, um, looking at asking, and coming out of COVID, asking parents, teachers, and out of school time providers what they thought about out-of-school learning, what the purpose of out-of-school learning was for them. And I just want to read you what the teachers said. Teachers said that out-of-school learning is incredibly important because it exposes children to new experiences and perspectives beyond school. 
It motivates them to get excited about learning, even those who aren't doing well in school. It allows children to spend time learning things beyond core academics. It allows them to express themselves and not just fit in. And it allows them to celebrate success in areas that they are confident in so they can excel. That's a wonderful list of things. And you have to ask, why do they have to leave the classroom to do that? That's the elephant, that they have to leave the classroom to get those kind of authentic, empowering learning experiences. Gary, um, who, who's the audience for this paper? Is it is it primarily uh, teachers, or do you do you hope it has a, a broader impact? I would say, in the spirit of Anchor Three, the co-design Anchor, I think it's for everyone. Uh, we would want everyone to engage in this and recognize that everyone has the capacity to be an educator. Everyone has the capacity to connect and build and design and freedom dream around what we want for our kids. So I would encourage all who are interested in, in changing their trajectory and really taking a stab at inequity to, to read this piece. Karen, this is a, it's a, it ended up being for me, a, a pretty practice oriented piece of how a, a community can come together around a group of kids and co-design. Are, are there policy implications here that, that you want to call out? There are always policy implications because as you know, Tom, school systems are the most tightly integrated systems we have. They are, they are locked in, they are integrated, and they are very good at tinkering around the edges to do things that don't matter, but they are notoriously bad at making changes that fundamentally challenge the value proposition. And as Thomas Arnett said in his paper, the K-12 value props, K-12 value networks, the value proposition is all linked to academics. It's all linked to a core set of academic courses that everybody has to take, standards that are backed up by standardized tests, and the fact that you sort and rank kids for graduation to go on to the next thing. Those are the top three value propositions in his chart. And until we can break those, you don't have any room for teachers to do anything. And the system is the only one that can, that can break those. And so we have to continue to do this work. But I think it's so important to start with the teachers, the students, and the families. Start with the people who are experiencing this because they know what they want. They just don't think they can get it in school. And the, the real resistance, the challenge that we have, this conundrum is when you look at that value proposition and you look at it against, for example, the, the work that Populist just did on the purpose of education, those things are in the bottom 10 of a list of 57 things that they think the purpose of education is. They actively hate them, but they still send their kids to school every day. And you have to ask why. It's because it has the functionality. It has the reliability. I have to send my kids somewhere. School is mandated. It's free. It's a really a multi-service organization that does a lot of things for me. And so then I'm going to go out and supplement learning to make sure my kid is getting interested. And that's where the inequity that comes in again. So we've got to tackle this, but we have to tackle it by helping parents and young people, young people are the most vocal, and teachers themselves acknowledge the fact that the learning that's happening in it's not just that we need wraparound services. We need learning to change. And that has to happen with giving people permission to change. But then also when you've got people out far enough doing the change, I was just talking to a, a superintendent, a state superintendent. He said, at some point, we needed to give people protection. Those people that had gone out on a limb to do things differently came back to say, we can't go any further unless you're going to protect us because a new superintendent is going to come in and we're going to be cut down. 
Gary, um, the paper talks about a relational web of educators. What What is that? Why is that important to you? Yeah, it, that that is exactly what we're trying to create, a web of educators that, um, that are all f- focused on supporting the, the individual student. So we want it, but that requires them to, to do the work of making sure that they are rowing in the same direction, that they have a sense of what the problem is, and they are working together creatively to think about solutions. So going back to what I said around like freedom dreaming. So we want to make sure they have the space to really dream about what is needed for that child, including the child. They get to dream, too, about their own futures. And so you want to create this intricate web of different stakeholders really engaging in authentic relationships with each other to move things forward for the child. And so it is complex. Systems are complex. But I think at the core, you want to make sure that everyone has the space to truly convey what they want to see happen. And then from there, you can narrow it down to figure out what's the best the best uh, path forward. We've been talking to Gary Briggs from the New Teacher Center. They just put out a great new paper called The Elephant in the Classroom. Uh, Gary, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for the paper. And Karen, Karen Pittman, an American icon, um, thanks for your contributions. Thanks for your life. We, man, we appreciate everything you've done for this country. Um, and thanks for being part of this process at the New Teacher Center. Um, I, I know it was a gift for them, but it, it was great to have you back on the, on the podcast. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. And one of the pleasures that you get when you sort of retire is you get to pick where you're going to spend your time. And so NTC is one of those places that I selected. Thanks for joining us on the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks to our producer, Mason Pasha, for making this possible. And uh, until next week, keep leading, keep learning, and keep innovating for equity. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart Podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.